be free I wish I could break all the chains holding me I wish I could say all the things that I should say Say I'm loud, say I'm clear For the whole round world to hear I wish I could share All the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars That keep us apart I wish you could know What it means to be So good morning everybody This is Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show. Wake up and smell the revolution, and wake up and smell the coffee. You know, I always depend on the kindness of strangers and friends like Gary Baca, who tells me, you don't have a microphone, Eric. No, point the microphone towards your mouth, Eric. So thank you, Gary, keeping me on the show, (laughs) keeping me on the case. I woke up enough to get here, but apparently not to realize I need a microphone. So, hey, you know, we do a lot of preparation on the show, so here, let me tell you what's going on. The first thing is we listen to Amy's headlines, because they're great, about six minutes, Gary, and then I comment on Amy's headlines, because I do study the world. Then, I'm going to sing the song, Maybe, by the Chantels. No, I'm going to sing along with the Chantels. And I'm going to sing quiet, because they are just off the chart. Then I'm going to have my friend, partner, Channing Martinez on. And we're going to discuss three separate things that we do together. We do pretty much everything together. So the first is going to be this benefit for our brother, Keith Lamar, who's on death row. Uh, Voices listeners, you must have listened to him by now a lot in the the, uh, conversations with me. Very excited on... Saturday, October 5th at the Strategy and Soul Movement Center. If you haven't been there, folks, 3546 Martin Luther King. Uh, tickets will be available if you're interested on uh, thestrategycenter.org. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the phenomenal jazz concert that's coming up. And uh, Channing will be part of it, not playing jazz. I'll be part of it in spoken word with Keith. And you should be part of it. Come on, come on, voices, listeners, let's go out and do something good. So we'll talk about that. Then we're going to talk about our endless struggle with the LAUSD school board. And we have a great letter here that Hakuna Uka and uh, Chenny Martinez and I have written. But there's got a lot of really important facts about the state of black, not just miseducation, but increasingly the... Uh, oppression, depression, and repression of black students. And But we have some very good demands to make it better. And then uh, Channing just came back from a terrific Crenshaw High Alumni Association trip to Yosemite. And we, he's going to talk a lot about black camping. So, and then if there's any time left, I'll keep singing. And if the show's over, I'll keep singing anyway. So with that, it's going to be a great show. Let Amy Goodman kick it off. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
Thousands of people are feared dead in Libya after a powerful Mediterranean cyclone brought devastating flooding to the eastern port city of Derna. Libya's National Center of Meteorology says the storm dumped more than 16 inches of rain on the city in less than 24 hours, causing two dams to burst, washing away entire neighborhoods. On Monday, a spokesperson for the Libyan National Army put the death toll in the thousands. The latest update regarding the death toll as the Prime Minister of Libya announced exceeds 2,000 in Derna city alone. May they rest in peace. There are also in Derna thousands of missing people, some 5,000 to 6,000 missing people, and this number could largely increase. Libya's Red Crescent said the number of missing people has reached 10,000, with at least 20,000 displaced from their homes. Much of Libya's infrastructure has crumbled since 2011, when the Obama administration and NATO backed an uprising against the longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi, setting off years of war. The catastrophic floods in Libya were triggered by Storm Daniel, a rare hurricane-like cyclone in the Mediterranean known as a Medicane. It's the same storm that brought unprecedented flooding to Greece, Turkey and Bulgaria last week. In Greece, public health officials are warning residents against using stagnant flood water amidst fears over the spread of disease, while supplies of clean drinking water remain scarce. Nearly a quarter of this year's crop production was lost to flooding in Greece's central agriculture-producing region. In Morocco, hopes of finding survivors of last Friday's devastating earthquake are fading, as the government said the death toll is near 3,000. The United Nations says at least 300,000 people have been affected by the quake, a third of them children. Here in the United States, a number of major climate-related disasters so far this year has already set records. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, said Monday 23 separate weather and climate disasters have caused at least a billion dollars in damages from January to August, surpassing the previous record set in all of 2020. In Geneva, the United Nations' top human rights official said Monday wealthy nations are failing to take steps needed to prevent the worst effects of the climate catastrophe. Volker Turk spoke to the U.N. Human Rights Council after the G20 wrapped up a weekend summit in India with no commitment to phase out fossil fuels. Climate change is pushing millions of people into famine. It is, it is destroying hopes, opportunities, homes and lives. In recent months, urgent warnings have become lethal realities again and again all around the world. We do not need more warnings. The dystopian future is already here. We need urgent action now. Ukraine's intelligence service says Ukrainian forces have seized control of four strategically important oil and gas drilling platforms in the Black Sea near the Russian annexed Crimean Peninsula. Officials in Kyiv accused Russia of using the platforms as ammunition depots and radar stations and said their seizure brought Ukraine one step closer to President Zelensky's goal of recapturing Crimea. So, hey, everybody. You know, one thing about Amy's news is, uh, well, it's a wake up, isn't it? Hold on. Not often good news, but. That's the news. Um, I want to talk about climate change because there have been about three or four, virtually every one, hurricane, uh, Libya, Morocco. But the last guy's statement that, you know, the climate disasters uh, producing famine, they're now lethal, and it's a dystopian future. 
So here's the problem, and we do want you to get involved with the Labor Community Strategy Center. Seriously, at uh, info at thestrategycenter.org, we are trying, with not great success, to get the uh, Los Angeles Metro, LA Metro, the bus and train system, to implement our very simple revolutionary program, right? One is no cars, no way. Let's start with that. Well, what does that mean, really, since I have a car and I like my car? It means that you restrict auto use. You say you have um, auto-free days, auto-free zones, auto-free rush hours. So what do people do? They use public transportation, but the MTA has literally uh, taken $8 billion and flushed it down the toilet for rail projects because they don't want to have a 24-7 bus system. I had hoped for more from Mayor Karen Bass, who has four votes on the um, MTA board. I've known it for so long, and so far, I think her response to us has been beyond disappointing because, you know, we ran this bus system for 10 years. I ran it for 10 years as the head of the joint working group uh, with the opponent being the MTA CEO. We went into federal court, and each time I had to document and we had to document why were the buses overcrowded, how many buses were overcrowded, how many buses would you need to reach certain levels. We had Ted Robertson studying every single bus line. We went into court and beat the MTA, you know, from one end of the court to the other because they're a bunch of liars. And over 10 years, we won 2,500 compressed natural gas buses. We got rid of the... Uh, diesel buses, we lowered the bus fare. We had an $11 weekly pass, which is totally cool, $21 bi-weekly pass, $42 monthly pass. We got a million extra hours. So we've been asking Mayor Bass, who now has four votes on the MTA, and that means you control the MTA because you have four votes to block anybody. We've asked Mayor Bass if she would support free public transportation now, but the most important thing is you can have free bad transportation because anybody who's got any money is going to use their car until, one, public transportation is really good, and two, you just can't use it because you're not allowed to use it. Uh, you need to add a million or two million additional hours. That is to say, there's no sense in having free transit if the bus don't show up, right? And... Why not have buses come every eight minutes? And I'll tell you something else I learned that because we ran the bus company. The more service you put on, the more ridership you put on. If the bus comes every eight minutes for a while, you know, there's very few people on it. When people say, wait a minute, comes every eight minutes, I'm going to use the bus. And the ridership goes up. All the bus people told us that. But the MTA purposely cuts the cuts the uh, bus routes and then says, look, nobody's using them. So I have to cut it again and again. It's a miserable institution. It's in permanent violation of Title VI of 1964 Civil Rights Act. It's in permanent violation of any, any climate justice program. So here's the problem. And I want you to hear it as a serious thing, which is why you should get involved with the Strategy Center at Info at the Strategy Center, U.S. imperialism, which is in its fascist, racist state,
cannot possibly make any moves to reduce climate, to reduce what are uh, called climate burning, because the only changes that would could take place would take place in two ways. Through the state, which is what the People's Republic of China does, with support from its own people, by the way, uh, saying, I'm sorry, these are the new rules. You can't drive your car or you can't use this. And, of course, the, the, the Biden will do nothing and uh, Trump will put us all in prison. So, But then you have the American masses who, after 40 years of counter-revolution, are a group of selfish miserable human beings as a group. I'm sorry. All this talk about the masses rising up. They can't even get off their phone to rise up for themselves. So we're living in the middle of a counter-revolution where the humanity of the humanity has been destroyed. So when you tell people droughts and floods, dystopic future, you know, the climate scientists are trying desperately to wake up the world. The strategy center is deeply concerned about greenhouse gas emissions in LA, because we know that those emissions go also to Africa where there are droughts and floods and famines. But nobody gives a damn. So if you do, you write to info at thestrategycenter.org. You get on our website, um, uh, info at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Go on it, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Click on and register. And send us an email, info at thestrategycenter.org. Hey, Eric, I do give a damn. How do I help the bus riders union, okay? Because we do, the reason I do Amy's headlines is pretty much anything she says, we're doing something about, which is what makes my life tolerable in the middle of an intolerable world. Okay, so then I'm going to sing a song, and I got to get the lyrics to sing along, even though I know them. Uh, I don't know if you know the Chantels, uh, one of the greatest women group of all time. They also sing a song called Every Night. And one of my top 10 favorite, favorite songs is called Maybe by the Chantels. So I'm going to sing along, but hopefully quietly this time, because I really want you to hear Florence's amazing voice. So with that, Gary, let's do this thing.
baby, maybe. I love that song. So good morning, everybody. Wake up and smell the revolution, and I also hope you're smelling your coffee. Um, so now I'm going to bring on my friend and partner, co-director of the Strategy Center, Channing Martinez. How are you doing this morning, Channing? I am good. I'm actually sipping on my coffee. Good, good. The only cup you have all day. So, yeah. um, so we're going to talk about three things, okay? We're going to start with the Keith Lamar uh, benefit. Uh, hold on. Now, again, listeners, you know, we always say we want organizers uh, sponsored radio because on our show, there's so many cool things to do. Isn't that nice? I mean, something to do instead of something to say, gee, I heard this and blah, blah, blah. And did you read his article about blah, blah, blah? So, uh, oh, maybe that's Keith Lamar calling. Hold on, sorry. So, we were contacted uh, through our friends Quincy Saw, actually, on all these email threads that I read. And they talked about a death row prisoner named Keith Lamar. So, I went on his site, uh, Justice for Keith Lamar, and I found a woman named Eddie. Amy Gurdjieff, and she is his driving force outside in the world, a dynamo, and she sets up these concerts and benefits for him all over the world. And Keith is a phenomenal, if you listen to voices, you've heard three long uh, conversations between Keith and myself. So on, and just one more thing that you know, Keith, we, we were scared because his execution date was November 16th, 2023. We're in September. Fortunately, he received a reprieve, and his execution date has been moved to January 13th, 2027, which is relatively good news, but if you're on death row, it's not like UPA, uh, three more years in hell. But he's a phenomenally up-tempo guy, and he has a terrific law firm. We believe he's convicted already of one uh, life sentence. But the second one, which was involved in a, a prison rebellion in Ohio State Penitentiary, is completely trumped up. That's the one we want overturned. Then once it's overturned, he's eligible for parole. And if it's overturned, there's a good chance they may just let him walk, finally, after 30 years in solitary. So you know about Mumia Abu-Jamal, but check out Keith Lamar, go on Voices from the Front Lines and listen to the uh, conversation. So check this out. Saturday, Thursday, sorry, October 5th at the Strategy and Soul Theater, 3546 Martin Luther King Jr. It's a jazz concert featuring spoken word by Keith Lamar from Death Row. Your host will be Channing Martinez. Albert Marquez Piano, Kazenda George Tenisax, Yosemite Montego Bass, Zach O'Faro Drums, Keith Lamar in conversation with Eric Mann. So you'll be in this wonderful theater, ours, and you'll hear an amazing, Amy will probably open up, Channing will welcome you, then this amazing jazz, so you're going to hear some great jazz, and then afterwards, Keith and I, he'll be on... Uh, the phone, 
someday he'll be in the at Strategy and Soul with us. We'll just be hugging them all up. And it'll be an amazing evening. So you need to go on thestrategycenter.org. Just scroll down, and you'll see all the stuff about Keith Lamar benefit. So Voices listeners, if you are interested, scroll down, check it out, and join us because we keep inviting you to stuff. This is a great thing to attend. Uh, Channing, before we move on, tell me a little bit about your experience since you and I went and saw Keith in in prison about a month ago. Sure. I mean, I this benefit is going to be so important. Um, also, it's the first time we're ever doing a jazz or any musical concert, and so which has always been tradition. And so we're working with uh, out all the technical and what kind of mics do we need, lights, and all the things that we all dreamed about. Um, but as you said, we did go visit Keith Lamar, um, and it is quite an expensive thing to hear about. Jenny, you're breaking up a little bit. It's something to hear about Keith um, on the radio show. It's one thing to also hear him over the phone, but it's a whole different thing when you have to, you know, type in the Google um, Ohio State Penitentiary, and it says turn right to pull into Ohio State Penitentiary, right? Um, it becomes really real. Um, and one thing I was observing is that when we pulled in, um, it, my first impression is that it looked like a public community college, which says, you know, some really big problems with community colleges and public colleges. Um, there's fences everywhere. You had to walk up to the fence, and there's a camera, and you wait until the fence automatically opens. You can't take anything into the prison. Even if you have a watch, you got to take it off. The only thing you can take in is your ID and a credit card, and the only thing to eat are these really terrible, fattening, sweet foods from the vending machines. Um, and, in fact, when we were there, that's the only thing that Keith was able to eat. Um, and, but despite all of those oppressive conditions, we had two really great visits, um, five hours each, right. <laughs> in which Keith really just came alive. Um, and you know, that, that's the first day, right? He just comes alive and he tells you all about our story and everything that's going on in our lives. And then the second day, he was really very vulnerable about how he's feeling and how the process has been, um, how much work it's been to both want to see people, but also the work of coming out and seeing people for five uh, five days, right? And, you know, the the realness of, you know, not a lot of people want to come and they they want to know your story, but they don't necessarily want to sit inside of the the meat of what it means to be in that place every day for the last 30 um, years of your life, right? Yeah, and, and another thing he said, you know, is this, uh, a lot of you who, I'm serious, who suffer from depression and can't get up in the morning, he said, you know, I, I wake up, he goes to sleep uh, very early so he can uh, read all night, 
And then um, he said, every morning I wake up and I look around, I'm in hell. And then I have to sort of um, rev myself up, come up with my political theory, my things. And he said, and one of the most beautiful things is he took my book, Comrade George, which I sent him, an investigation into the life, political thought, and assassination, which is now on sites for like 700 to this one that was $2,800. But I had four left, and I sent one to him and one to Amy. He said he kept my book as the only book when he was in solitary on a hunger strike. And he said, Eric, if you die tomorrow, which I don't plan to, that Comrade George alone is a legacy. So one thing you'll be struck by is not just the great jazz concert, but he is a philosopher king now. He has made a major transformation in his consciousness. He reads voraciously like George Jackson. And we'll tell you more about him, and we'll be playing some more uh, programs before. But come on out on Thursday, October 5th. Come on, you can do this. Go on thestrategycenter.org, www.thestrategycenter.org. Flip down, you'll see the material. If you're interested, get a ticket and help him because all the funds are going to go to get him out of prison. And there's a very strong chance. He has a very strong legal chance, but more importantly, he has a very strong legal team. So we'll be keeping you abreast on this. Great music, great place, Strategy and Soul Movement Center, great person, Keith Amara. Also, Amy Goodridge will be there. So come on, see you on October 5th. Um, so Channing, I got, uh, let's see, we got a half an hour. So I have the letter we sent to the board about, you know, that I'm going to read out loud that we're going to talk about, which is just a great letter. And thank you for all the work you did last night to, you know, get it to the board. And you saw we already got one response about an hour later. So um, I want to do that. Uh, I want to sing one more song. And I mainly, why don't we start with Black Camping? Because... You know, we can get to all the other stuff, but we already have a good show, and I'm going to sing one more song anyway. So, black camping, almost like a contradiction in visual terms, right? Um, <laughs> you've been in, uh, uh, well, you just start from the beginning. You, you, you've been telling me great stories, so tell me how you got involved in the club, where'd you go to Yosemite, what was the experience like, go from there. Sure. So I went to Crenshaw High School, um, and I went there between about 2001 and 2005, somewhere in that time. Um, and in fact, my my uh, freshman year, that was when the Twin Towers were, quote, bombed, supposedly. Um, and I got involved in this eco-club um, in my ninth grade year. Um, and we started with a hike um, in Kenneth Hahn, which is down the street in the middle of South Los Angeles. Um, I was an extremely shy person, <laughs> is what I am told. Um, and the Eco Club, along with being involved in the Strategy Center, helped me to really find myself. Um, and so... It, uh, 
uh, it was hosted by William Vandenberg, um, who was a teacher at Crenshaw High School, um, now a deep mentor and father figure for me. Um, and his main goal was to figure out how do how do you um, expose Black and Latinx students to a whole world beyond what the system really wants them to see. Um, and he himself has been involved in preserving um, the environment, um, environmental justice for years, and he wanted to figure out as a teacher how to be introduce students to that. Um, and he was a black, so he, a black teacher. And he is a black teacher, that's right, um, which is important because the, there's a limited number of black teachers in the whole country in general, but in L.A. as well. Um, and so that's how I got involved. Um, our first trip was to Wyoming. Um, we went to the Teton Science School um, and Teton National Park and also visited Yellowstone. It was a collaborative trip between Crenshaw High School and Dorsey High School, which at the time was said to have had a rival. Now we really realize that it's just a system pitting black <laughs> students against other black students right. for no darn reason. Right. <laughs> um, and it was that trip because... You know, we joke about it, but we 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 joke to say those kids from Dorsey were terrible. They were bad. <laughs> they weren't any worse than Crenshaw students. Um, but for me, coming from a mom who's from Belize, first generation, born here, that was a very eye-opening experience, um, and it helped me to sort of find my own voice. Um, and so that's how we started. Um, we then went to Yosemite through this program that is uh, called Wildlink. Now it's called Nature Bridge. And the program in Yosemite was a school that is trying to expose students um, to wilderness habitats, um, including Black and Latinx students. And so every year they would partner with around five different organizations around the country to bring a cohort of students to do a environmental justice project inside of Yosemite. And so I was part of the first group um, going from Crenshaw High School on that. I went about three times. and um, Hold it right there just for a second. Yeah. The voice you're listening to is Channing Martinez. He's about the co-host and producer of Voices from the Frontlines. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Los, in Santa Barbara, and important for all our friends all over the world, streaming live on the web at www.kpfk.org. You're always free to contribute to this great organization at 818-985-5735. The voice you're hearing here is Eric Mann, and now we'll go back to Channing Martinez. Um, sure. So we've done that for some time. Um, and where we are at now is that none of us are at Crenshaw High School anymore. Um, in fact, there's a lot of drama about whether Crenshaw High School is going to close because of the lowering, um, enrollment. That is a problem that was exclusively caused by LAUSD, um, that, basically went after every progressive teacher at Crenshaw High School. 
um, went after every progressive student, every progressive parent, and many of those students, parents, and teachers left the school, um, including Bill Vandenberg, who was not invited to come back to school, right? Jesus. Um, so, uh, and imagine that. I mean, Bill Vandenberg brought the morning show to Crenshaw High School and brought, you know, what, 500 students to be on the morning show. They gave students free camping gear. They gave him a free trip. It's as if he did not even um, contribute to Crenshaw High School, um, so much so because LUSD wanted to squash any progressive nature inside of Crenshaw High School. Um, and so now they have, and now the school is falling apart. Um, and so even though we are not at Crenshaw High School, we all like each other a lot. We've been on all types of camping trips. And so now we go every year to Yosemite as part of their volunteer program. Um, and we volunteer two days and get a free you know, seven-day camping trip out of it. Um, and then we do a hike in January as well. How long is the hike? Uh, so I just came, uh, the hike is, you know, a couple hours. It's to the Hollywood sign. Hmm. Um, and so that's, that was the experience I just came back from, which is Yosemite for five days. What was it like? Um, it's interesting. Um, there's not a lot of black people or black families, <laughs> um, visiting Yosemite. And a lot of that is because it is hard to visit national parks. I mean, for us, we drove five and a half hours from L.A. to get into Yosemite, um, which means that you have to have a car <laughs> um, that's working very well, that has all of its tags. You're driving through the middle of California, which, you know, they don't like black people, and so they look for every excuse to pull you over. Um, and, you know, once you get there, then you have to find money to pay to get into the park then you have to find money to actually camp or stay there and then money for food right so it's a it's quite an expensive trip um, and takes a lot of coordination um, and once you get there um, you are both overwhelmed by the amazing peaks and the amazing valley of Yosemite Valley um, but you're also overtaken by the fact that there's very few black and Latino people there, including folks that work there in the National Park Service or uh, in any of the hospitality services. Or overwhelmingly um, white? Overwhelmingly white. So you're getting white hospitality? White <laughs> <laughs> overwhelmingly white and Asian. Um, and But for us, I think many of us were reflecting that this has been one of the best trips that we have ever done. Um, and part of that was because we got to speak to Ranger um, Shelton Johnson, who has been there for years. Um, but he does this, he's a black ranger, first of all. Um, and he's an interpretive ranger, which means he does not do any law enforcement, but he does guides and tells people about the history of the park. And his particular specialty has been telling people about the Buffalo Soldiers' um, role in preserving Yosemite National Park. Um, 
Now, for me, that's it's a little controversial because it means that you know there's a question in in the air of whether you protected it from indigenous people or who were you protecting it from. Um, but nonetheless, he is doing his part to make sure that black people know that they've been inside the park from the beginning and that they're welcome. You know, Channing, uh, we know each other so well. We've been working very closely for about 10 years and known each other for forever. You know, just sometimes, um, you know, it's so sort of hard, amazing in terms of consciousness to sort of always be black. You know what I mean? Like you're driving your car, but you're driving your car to Yosemite, are your tags right, or your taillights right? You know, at any given moment, when you just think you're going somewhere, for for any moment you forget you're black just for a second, the world is so hostile, and there's so many pitfalls that you almost can never forget, even if you want to. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think everyone is conscious about it, or I should say everyone knows that they are black. Um, for me, it is the politicalization of that um, and understanding, you know, what it means for me as a black organizer to take a break and um, camp in Yosemite. Um, and for me, it's, it's both, it's both a relaxing, like, how do I revive myself? But it's also figuring out and realizing, like, one thing I was reflecting on this year is I've been here, I don't know, five to eight times. There's a lot of black people in my life who have never even heard of Yosemite. Um, there is a lot of black people in my life who have been supporting me every time I go to Yosemite, but they themselves have never been to Yosemite, like my mom, right? Right. Um, and so it is trying to figure out how do how do they get to experience such a beautiful, you know, place that has been preserved and created by Mother Nature. Well, Channing, why don't we think about working with uh, Professor Vandenberg and uh, come up with a strategy center bus? you know, in a year, and uh, you can both lead a trip to Yosemite. Um, so let's be, you know, one good thing about the strategy sentence, we can always dream of the answer to the question, right? And uh, you came back radiant, by the way. I mean, I hadn't seen you so happy. You were like radiant. You were just as I was so happy to see you when you got in. I missed you so much. Five days, a lot of separation. So, uh why were you so happy? Well, the other thing about going is there is a whole different lifestyle that you live for a week. Um, capitalism teaches you to want all types of material things and to depend on them. Um, and everyone does their little quirks, quirks to get some semblance of feeling all of it is fake. <laughs> and you realize that when you go to Yosemite, um, because all the inspiration you need is there. I mean, um, when you go there, you see such a grandiose force of Mother Nature that reminds you that, you know, you're just one 
tiny speck in this really large world. Um, that's that's one. But the other the other thing is with camping, um, you can't bring a lot of the capitalist world in with you because the capitalist world literally kills Mother Nature, right? You can't bring hard soaps, right? Because that's literally going to kill the Mother Nature, right? Um, we also have to work collectively to figure out how do we deal with food um, and not leaving food out because then that makes every living animal within Yosemite dependent on that food, which they're not, you know, normally naturally dependent on. Um, and that ruins the environment. And so what I did for five days was basically living off the land in some ways. We're in tents. Um, we are careful about everything that we are doing, including washing dishes and putting away food, making sure not to introduce things into nature that were never supposed to be there. Um, and then on top of that, because you're all camping together, it was about 10 of us, we're all dependent on each other to make sure we survive, right? And so it is almost like living in a commune um, where everyone sort of finds it's funny, I was about to use the quote from Playbook, um, but find their own voice while they're singing with the choir, if that makes sense, right? Um, and so when you wake up, someone is already going to get the water. Someone else is already cooking the eggs. Someone else is cleaning the bathroom. Someone else is figuring out how do you put stuff out for lunch so that everyone can be able to do their lunch. And then we all collectively get up and we go do our activities for the day and... Um, and so it was a real experience in how do you really build a group together collectively. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. You sound great. Um, just to say you made a reference to this book I've written called Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of a Successful Organizer. And Channing's one of the best people who's ever read it because he found a section called... Uh, sings with the choir but finds her own voice. And a lot of you listeners, we've used it as a uh, premium. So you sang with the choir, but what was your own voice like? Did you have solitude? Did you have, you know, what form of meditation or thinking? Did new thoughts come up? What was it like for you alone, the alone part? Uh, for me, I, I did do a little bit of thinking, but part of it was just my need for sleep. <laughs> um, and so even during one of the breaks, everyone wanted to go to this river and jump in the cold river. But I just was like, you guys have fun. I'm going to go sleep. <laughs> um, and that in itself was a really big gift. Um, that's one, but also... Because I've been doing coaching classes for the last year, I did a lot more observing of myself and, um, you know, did a lot of realizing that I tend to do a lot. Um, and so this trip, I was conscious to, on some days, do a lot and help the group move forward and help maintain all the aspects of the camp. But then on other days, I was conscious to not do a lot. 
<laughs> and make sure other people were going in and contributing, and I'm just sitting and relaxing and watching. Well, you do more than a lot. You know, we both have this sort of work ethic where sometimes we're thrilled to work. You know, we love our job, but sometimes it's harder to slow down and, you know, I don't do much, but I go, I try to go on hikes and I go on walks. And my walks alone, you know, just walk to a park and back for two miles. You really get a chance to be by yourself and just, you know, you don't know what the hell's going to come into your mind or not. My favorite is losing my mind, I say. You know, my mind is so filled with stuff. And they're all in there fighting with each other and tell me to do things. So if I can meditate out of that into just watching, you know, where I'm going and thinking and listening to music. So it sounds like you had a great time and sleep is a one. <laughs> I'm a big, you know, I love sleep. Sleep is one of the great, coolest things. So especially for you, it works. I mean, you work so hard. Uh do you meditate in conscious form? Uh, sometimes, not not always. I think my form of meditation is sometimes just the activity of doing things that are not geared towards any goal. Right. Um, so you know, like hiking, it's not geared towards like I must do this. It's just sort of relaxing. Um, um, and then on this trip, I think. You know, part of my meditation was finding my voice back in photography, which, you know, at, at, I'll be honest with you, earlier this year, I was like, I'm not even using any of this photography stuff. I should just sell all of it. And then I go to Yosemite. I'm like, oh, there's so many things to photograph that are really beautiful that I got to capture. So um, that was also part of my meditation as well. Well, when you went to Otis College in Art and Design, did you sort of major or minor in photography? I majored in photography, but um, always with me, I um, can't be nailed down to one thing. And so I took <laughs> all of the classes for sculpture, took a lot of the classes for um, uh, motion graphics. I did everything. <laughs> well, that's what you do with the strategies and do everything. Which is a good thing. I mean, we both do everything. You know, that's a great, you know, I'm going to do a, I keep, you know, I dream of articles and one of them is called Sweeping the Floor and the importance of the meditation of sweeping the floor, you know, that I was with a, uh, not a point, but a person who was helping me at the Crenshaw house and I won't go into details and I said, we need to move these chairs and he said, no, I'm a such and such. I don't move chairs. And I went, well, I'm a director of an organization. I always move the chairs. I always sweep the, come on, move some chairs. So you and I like work. You know, I think we meditate into the work as well. People should understand if you find joy in your work, there is a meditative nature of that. Um, I I agree with that. I mean, one one person that was, on the trip with me, they were washing dishes, and out of nowhere, they just sort of busted out and said, you know, this is very meditative, <laughs> washing the dishes in the middle of nature. I, so I totally understand that. 
I had that exact same experience on the one camping trip I've taken in my life. <laughs> I'm gonna, but you're, you're encouraging me, by the way. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. But I didn't know where the hell Yosemite was. You had to show me on the map. So, uh, I, But I can tell you where Brooklyn is. So uh, last thoughts. I mean, this is so great for you, and you should keep doing You know, you sound great. Um, you know, as they say, what were your takeaways, sir? What, what are the lessons? Here's an interesting thing. You're talking to some young black kids right now, right? What would you tell them? Mm. Uh, I mean, I I go back to how are the traditions that we're trying to put out in our bookstore and our organization, um, and specifically back to... Um, Robin Kelly's book, Freedom Dreams. And I think, you know, one thing I was reflecting on is that one of the reasons I'm able to dream up so much is partially because of Mr. Vandenberg and also the Strategy Center um, teaching me that it's okay to not be locked into what the system wants you to be locked into. And part of one of the lessons in going out in nature and coming out of South LA where everything is so oppressive is that it unlocks your mind to say that, to show you that there is much more. Um, There's much more than buses being 20 minutes late. (laughs) There's much more than a school system that oppresses you and tries to teach you a white history. There's much more than a city full of Black and Latinx uh, political electeds that really don't care about their people. There's much more. And the moment you realize that, you can go back in with a more renewed spirit to be able to fight them and know that there can be a fight against them. Yeah, and I think the thing about, you know, when I go to Sedona, which is the only... You know, as soon as I see the red rocks it, it, and the mountains uh, that got red because they were under the ocean for millions and millions of years, and that sort of is like a rust, you know, it's an oxidation of the stones. And yep. to be around something that mag- majestic where it pulls you in... Uh, Anyway, this is great, Channing. So much to think about, and of course, you know the the last to bring us back to uh, the terror is um, how's it possible that in five hundred years European imperialism has destroyed everything in its path? You know, so that you know even the mountains are. a commodity. So with that, I think I have time to sing a song. I'm going to end with a song. Jenny, this was really, really beautiful. I felt like I was there washing the dishes with you. And I'll see you in a couple of hours as we go back to fight for black students. Absolutely. This is great. So we're going to end with my friend Jerry Butler, and I'm going to sing for your precious love. But before I do, let's figure out your homework. So... You're going to go on the website, right? And you're going to at least consider getting a ticket for
for the October 5th jazz benefit for the death row prisoner, Keith Lamar. You're going to go on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com and you're going to register. Thank you. We got about two or three registrations last week. If we can get every week four or five listeners to go on, that means you're going to get a weekly bulletin on what we're doing and the podcast later. So thank you for being on Voices from the Frontlines. I'm going to go out with my friend Jerry Butler for your precious love. See you next week at Tuesday at 8. I'll be drinking my coffee. Thank you so much for being on Voices from the Frontlines. Take care of yourselves. Oh